Close Horse is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Picnic wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and dead stock textiles. Picnic wear strives for minimal waste, but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnic wear on Instagram at Picnic wear, and that's wear, W-E-A-R, and at www.picnicwear.com. No flight back vintage, bringing fun new life to old things always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at NoFlightBackVintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room. All while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. And that's Gabriella with one L. Gotta get that spelling right. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios. 
all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at www.cKinney.com. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. For the month of August, St. Evans is supporting the Women's Prison Association, empowering women to redefine their lives in the face of injustice and incarceration. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evans. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom-and-pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul, and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl, or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country.
Republica Unicornia Yarns, handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed, made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at Republica underscore Unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that has been so immersed in the world of Etsy that last night I dreamed that I opened an Etsy store in my house and it was pretty cool, although I was doing a lot of stain removal. I don't know. Anyway, I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 92, part three in our Etsy Sewed series. I can't believe we're getting so close to episode one. 100, which I have big plans for, and I'll be telling you about that more in the next episode. And I promise today we're really going to talk about Etsy. We'll be picking up the story in 2008, which you might be asking yourself, how are we only in 2008 after three episodes? Welcome to my life. (laughs) It always starts in 2008 and gets stuck there for a long time. Anyway, let's just jump right in because I have a lot to tell you today. All right, let's go. Two thousand eight is a year that we talk about a lot around here at Close Horse World Headquarters, and by Close Horse World Headquarters, I mean my office recording studio faux fruit repository in my house in Burdenham, Pennsylvania. And by we, I mean mostly me, with occasional input from Dustin or Brenda. But 2008, it's just such a big year. For one, 2008 was a pivotal year for eBay, as you learned in the last episode. And yes, 2008 was a pivotal year for Etsy, which I'll be discussing more today, But 2008 was also the year of the global financial crisis and the recession that followed, which not only lit the fuse under that massive bomb that was and is fast fashion, it also changed the way our economy works. Like, hi, gig economy, the way we live our lives, uncertain, fearful about getting sick or losing our second job maybe our car breaking down so we can't do Uber anymore, that financial crisis will come in the fall of 2008. And spoiler, it will have an impact on Etsy. But we're going to start today's installment of the Etsy story in the very beginning of the year, January 2008. If you recall from episode 90, Etsy experienced exponential growth in 2007 with a particularly wild holiday season. 
and the expectation, which was literally being promised by Etsy CEO Rob Kalin, was that Etsy would become profitable that year. But guess what? It did not, which meant it needed more money to keep running in 2008. Basically, what this means is that despite about $26 million worth of merchandise being purchased from Etsy in 2007, the company was spending more money than it was making. It was at the end of its runway. Runway is a great startup business term. It's a really amazing visual metaphor, meaning you can like close your eyes and you can picture how it all works. If you're a small business owner, you're probably thinking about your runway, even if you don't know what that term means. Runway refers to how many months your business can keep operating before it's out of money. Basically, how long you can stay in business with your current sales and expenses without either going into debt or taking on more investment to extend that runway. You and your business, you're the airplane, and the runway is your financial situation. When you're still in that runway phase of your business, it means you aren't making any actual profit when you deduct the cost of what you're selling and your overhead expenses from the money you're bringing in from sales. It's a nerve-wracking place to be. It's a thing that keeps you up at night, especially if you're a small business. Any profit that you do make, however, adds a few more inches or feet to that runway. In reality, that's days, weeks, or months of keeping that business going. With the right balance, your runway begins to feel infinite because it's constantly extending itself. You're bringing in enough money to pay your employees, to pay all of your overhead expenses, to buy more product, and you're not running short. That's a profitable, healthy business. If you aren't making any profit, well, that runway just keeps getting shorter as that airplane moves further down the runway. And you don't want the airplane to fall off the runway into the woods or the river or the ocean. You know, picture this this airport, this runway in your favorite environment. (laughs) Your runway, even as an older, more established business, can really reveal the values and priorities of your business. Like if your runway is massively long, infinitely longer than your actual airplane, way more runway than you actually need, It probably means a few things. Either you're marking up your product a ton and it's possibly low quality or kind of scammy and that could catch up with you, or you aren't paying people enough or hiring enough people. Your staff is probably underpaid and doing the jobs of several people, or it's just you doing all the work and it's time for you to get yourself some help because you're going to burn yourself out. If your business has been around for a long time and your runway is always this close to running out, well, you're probably spending too much money either on inventory that isn't selling, on marketing that's not bringing a lot of repeat customers, or on staffing, like your team is too big, maybe the people at the top are getting paid way too much. These are common issues in early startup culture. Nasty Gal, my previous employer, ultimately ran out of runway and filed for bankruptcy due to several of these issues. 
The company was spending way too much money on customer acquisitions, spending more than $100 to acquire each new customer, but then that customer only shopped the site one time and spent about $50. So they lost $50 on every customer that came to the site. And like I said, these customers never came back again. Also, the company was carrying too much inventory and never cleaning it out. They never revisited the inventory strategy. They just had too much liability in terms of the stuff they owned to sell. When I started working there, some of my categories had enough inventory and stock that it would take more than a year to sell out of it, even if we didn't order anything else during that time period. That's, that's a bad metric, let me tell you. <laughs> Another thing we were doing is spending too much money on things that weren't making an impact on the business from a revenue perspective. And they were ultimately shortening that runway in major chunks. We had a big fancy office in downtown LA that was filled with very expensive furniture, a huge store in Santa Monica that wasn't really doing well, and massive sample and travel budgets for design. And probably tons more ways in which we just weren't practicing fiscal discipline. When you imagine Etsy hitting the end of its runway, it's a slightly different scenario because for one, Etsy doesn't sell stuff, right? Yes, people buy stuff on the Etsy platform, but what Etsy really makes its money off of is providing the service of that platform, right? So it's not like they had too much inventory or the stuff they're selling isn't profitable enough. They couldn't just have a big clearance sale to generate some more cash flow and extend that runway. You know, I'm just going to tell you, as a person who's worked in the startup area, the big old clearance sale to extend the runway to bring in some cash flow is a classic move. And there's nothing sketchy or anything about it. Often, if you're in the business of selling stuff and you run out of runway, it can mean that you have too much inventory. So clearing it out can put your business back in line. But Etsy couldn't do that, right? Because what they were doing was taking a commission on what other people were selling. So I guess they could have tried really hard to bring on a lot of sellers really fast in the hopes that those sellers would sell a ton of stuff. Even as I'm saying that out loud, that's not a great plan when you're literally running out of money. Too many variables, too many what ifs to ensure actual success there. Clearly, Etsy's expenses were exceeding its revenue, and that's because salaries, rent on their offices, marketing, tech, infrastructure stuff, or all of its cool community programs, it was all adding up. So Etsy needed to bring in more money via investment, which meant, once again, venture capital. I'm sure, I'm so sure, you're growing tired of hearing me say this, but I'm going to remind you once again that venture capital comes with some serious strings attached. And those strings are really more like ropes. It's like the kind of rope that holds a cruise ship, a massive cruise ship at a dock. And those strings, those ropes are exponential growth and profitability. You've got to deliver both. Even at this point, Etsy couldn't be like, well, we had a big year last year. We've grown a lot. We're just going to sit tight here at this level of sales. So could you just give us some money to keep going? Of course not. 
they had to guarantee that exponential growth and profitability as soon as possible. Any investor who gave Etsy some money was thinking this is the next eBay. And at this point in 2008, investors would know that the previous year in 2007, eBay had brought in $750 million in revenue. Etsy's $26 million was measly in comparison, but investors would be assuming that it was on its way to that $750 million a year. So it looked like a pretty good deal. Etsy raised another $27 million in investor funding in January of 2008. That's a ton of money, but even before that, Etsy was valued at $90 million. So it seemed like a pretty unrisky and very lucrative investment for anyone who signed on. This round of funding was led by Jim Breyer, a venture capitalist and board member at both Facebook and Walmart. And leading this round of funding for Etsy earned him a seat on the board of Etsy. This marked a major shift in the strategy and operations of Etsy. And sellers were not thrilled about that Walmart connection. In 2008, we weren't living in this depressing, frightening world of Amazon. So Walmart was the most evil company anyone could think of. And to be fair, sometimes I get angry that Amazon has made people forget just how terrible Walmart is for both small businesses and workers all over the world. A lot of sellers were asking themselves, what would this influx of money, this new addition to the board, this potential shift in the strategy of Etsy mean for the community that Etsy had created and nurtured. To quote Vox writer Caitlin Tiffany, suddenly a better life for crafters could not be the company's only goal. It also had to make serious money for some people who are pretty serious about their money. And to be clear, I don't think anyone on the Etsy team, including Rob Kalin, the CEO and founder, took this decision to accept this venture capital money lightly, or at least I hope not. I mean, Imagine for yourself, what would you do in this situation? Would you lay off a bunch of workers to conserve your runway? Would you just let Etsy go under, meaning that not only would all of the employees of that company lose their jobs, all of the sellers whose livelihoods depended on Etsy would also be affected. Where would they go? Jim Breyer, that venture capitalist who was on the board of Facebook and Walmart, and now Etsy, told CNN that he received about 60 emails from concerned Etsy sellers immediately after the investment. And he said, it is possible to be the lead independent director of Walmart and be absolutely passionate about art and crafted goods. Over time, Etsy sellers, as well as Etsy shareholders, can do very well if we stay true to our mission. <sighs> just big sigh here. I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of weird ethical considerations here. Maybe ethical isn't the right term. But yes, it's amazing that Etsy, just like eBay, was giving ordinary people an opportunity to start their own business and build a livelihood. And you know, if you've been listening long enough or you follow Close Horse Podcast on Instagram, that I truly believe small business is the future. So I get excited 
by these ideas, I agree with so much stuff that Etsy was doing and thinking at this time. But what we really have here in surrounding this lovely story of individuals all over the world becoming small business owners thanks to these platforms is the dark reality that massive corporations like eBay, like Etsy, are profiting off of these small businesses. And so there isn't a lot of freedom for these sellers. They don't have freedom of movement. They can't just, like if you if they rented out a bad storefront downtown, move to another street where there is better traffic, right? And without Etsy or eBay, whatever platform they're selling on, they don't really have a lot of options because they sort of get lost in this infinite galaxy universe, I guess, that is the internet. And that hasn't changed. I mean, one of the most frequent conversations I have with various makers and sellers in our community is, what do I do if I leave Etsy? What do I do if I leave Instagram? How do I reach people? And I don't have an answer for that yet. I have been having a lot of conversations about that. I do think that there is opportunity in the future for a lot of different sellers, makers to band together to create some sort of nonprofit co-op that would allow them to pool their money and their resources to market, to run a larger site that would bring in lots of different customers in the way that Etsy has. But that doesn't exist right now. And certainly when we're talking here about 2008, that definitely doesn't exist, right? I do believe that Rob Kalin truly did have this utopian vision of Etsy as a community and as an organization that could have an amazing impact on the world. And I think he really did want to both protect and support the makers on the platform, where I think he could sometimes be full of shit, for lack of better term there, is one, he'd never been a maker trying to make a living off of an online platform like Etsy. And I would suspect he doesn't even know how to run a maker business, right? And two, this is a guy who, by virtue of where he grew up, of his personality, of being a white male at a certain time around the right people, was able to just get tons of money to grow a business from an idea he had. And real talk, for most of us, that is not a possibility, right? So I just, I know he had good intentions. I, I, I want to believe that, but I also think he didn't know enough, if that makes sense. In the Etsy blog post announcing this round of funding, he said, quote, this means that we now have the resources to extend Etsy's reach in this world to enable so many more people to make a living making things. We want Etsy to exist for hundreds of years. Our goal is for Etsy to be an independent, publicly traded company focused on all things handmade. To exist for hundreds of years. That... Oh, okay, whatever. Anyway, moving on. He said that Etsy was almost at the break-even point, which means not making a profit, but not losing money either. But being almost at the break-even point means, guess what? Losing money. But he also felt that this round of funding would enable the company to get to that next level 
where it would become self-sustaining and profitable. That $27 million would be used to, one, buy $5 million worth of hardware and hosting over the next two years. Seems legit. We'll talk about this a little bit more, but there were a lot of complaints about the speed, the functionality, the reliability of the Etsy website of the platform. Uh, They would also support more currencies and languages other than the U.S. dollar and English. And this was something that actually did frustrate and alienate international customers. And particularly savvy sellers were like, you know, by being only accessible to people who can pay in U.S. dollars and speak English, I actually am uh, missing a lot of customers, right? Next, they were going to fix the checkout system because at this point, there wasn't one. Well, there sort of was. But at this point, you had to pay for each item you wanted to purchase individually. Every buyer had to pay every seller on an individual basis. You couldn't group it all together and check out all at once, which you can now. At this point, there was no Etsy payment system that worked across all sellers. And of course, we've had that for years now, and it's a pretty major upgrade, even though you wouldn't think about it, right? Next, and I'm just going to go ahead and say here, I think Etsy still has a long way to go here. They were going to fix search because shoppers were very vocal about how horrible the search function was, and so were sellers. I am going to say... Search is still something that causes a lot of retailers so much stress because it's really expensive and no one has completely nailed it yet. But of course, there is a spectrum of good and bad search across all kinds of retailers and platforms, including Etsy. Also, the company wanted to have a cushion in case of recession and this money would do that. It's important to think about that kind of stuff because when you're in a short runway situation with your business, as Etsy was, even one month of lower than usual sales can begin the process of going out of business. Also, Etsy was going to use some some of that money to offer customer service, which apparently Etsy didn't have that yet, and my mind is officially blown. They also wanted to provide competitive wages and take care of Etsy's employees, which is always great to hear, right? These are all great uses of that money. And P.S., I don't know if you remember this from the first Etsy episode just a few weeks back, but this, this moment was this time that Kalen posted that video to the Etsy blog of him reading the children's book about Swimmy. In that same post, he said, quote, we do not want Etsy itself to be a big tuna fish. Those tuna are the big companies that all us small businesses are teaming up against. And I'm sure he meant Walmart and Amazon. And you know, I really like to think that he believed all of that. I want to believe that. I'm not saying that I don't believe that, actually. In February, just weeks after Etsy finished that round of funding, things were getting weird over at eBay. If you recall from the previous episode, Meg Whitman had just left eBay to pursue a political career after 10 years in the role. During her tenure at eBay, she made eBay a household name and a massive, massive company. As Whitman left, the new CEO, John Donahoe, was installed, and he instituted a lot of new policies at eBay that sellers did not like. They felt very pro-customer, very anti-seller, which is an interesting way of looking at it all because one could argue that without its sellers, eBay had no 
business. And sellers were also customers of eBay because they literally paid eBay for its services. But it wasn't like eBay ever looked at them that way. And now eBay's new policies were drawing a line in the sand that the company would prioritize the happiness of shoppers over that of the sellers in the hopes that each shopper would shop as much as possible, as often as possible on eBay. I promise that is not the last time you will hear this logic in this series. And this is not the last time we will discuss the sort of logical fallacy here that sellers aren't customers because, well, they are. The archives of the internet are filled with articles from this period debating the merits of Etsy versus eBay as more and more sellers, specifically vintage sellers, began to consider leaving eBay. Etsy was super US-centric and the site was slow. eBay had a faster site, better search function, and more international customers. But then again, Etsy seemed to value its sellers a lot more than eBay did. And ultimately... Etsy won out with tons of sellers moving on over to Etsy. Etsy wasn't perfect. At this point, grumbling from its sellers began to seep out of its forums and into the rest of the internet. Seller shops were being suspended because of one customer complaint or for no reason at all. And sellers found little to no support from Etsy when they tried to remedy these problems. But despite all of this, That mass exodus of eBay sellers to Etsy, along with a massive influx of Martha Stewart fans. Oh, wait, I guess we should talk about Martha Stewart, my girl, for a second here. In March of 2008, Kalen made an appearance on the Martha Stewart show where he famously said to the audience, this is going to come back to haunt him, quote, anyone here, if you're in school or out of school, or if you're any age, can start a business from home. He was a hit, of course, and for a few months afterwards, there were rumors that Martha was having an affair with Kaylin. No, no, those weren't the rumors, although I love that set of rumors. Actually, the rumors were that Martha was going to buy Etsy. That didn't happen, but what did happen is tons of Martha fans became either Etsy shoppers or sellers, and is kind of a match made in heaven, if you will. Like, imagine if... Martha Stewart had bought Etsy, what would that have been like? I bet it would have changed a lot of their marketing direction over the years away from this sort of like hipstery Brooklyn kind of vibe to like mainstream, you know, middle America, let's make everything beautiful and lovely. And I'm not saying that's better. It's just different. (laughs) I think it would have changed the kinds of sellers that could have success on Etsy. Like it's a totally different parallel universe version of Etsy that is so different. (laughs) Well, thanks to the influx of eBay sellers and those Martha fans, by the end of the year, Etsy had more than tripled its previous year's sales. That's the kind of exponential growth that investors want to see. No, not just want to see, demand to see. And we'll talk about that all a little bit more later too. 
despite this success, I mean, this is success, right? Like we're we're talking growth that is more than 300%. We're talking hiring and new customer acquisition and new sellers. And just, this is a big deal. Like Etsy is becoming a household name too. Maybe not to the extent of eBay, but it's, it's on the path, right? Nonetheless, things at Etsy headquarters were not great. I stumbled upon a 2011 profile of Etsy and Kaylin from Business Publication Inc. And I'm going to be talking about this profile a lot because, well, it's got a very, very direct and obvious agenda, but it also has some really good information that shows a less cozy, warm and fuzzy, utopian vision of Etsy, okay? To call this article critical of Kaylin would be an understatement. But it also reveals a lot of the sort of ethical and logical disconnects at work at Etsy at this time. The writer of this piece, Max Chafkin, seems to think that Kaylin is full of idealistic hot air and is mostly unqualified for his job. And I'm just going to tell you that like, while this particular profile feels really iconic to me in terms of how brutal it is, many, many other pieces that I read from basically the launch of Etsy to this time, through this time period, at the very least hint that perhaps Kaylin is a little in over his head, right? To be fair, in 2008, I want to say Kaylin was 28. I mean, he was young and his work experience was kind of all over the place. Like he was a personal assistant. He'd been going to college. He'd maybe done some woodworking. Fred Wilson, an early investor in Etsy and actually the first VC investor in Twitter, told Shafkin, Rob is an accidental business person. He's actually a pretty good business person, but he thinks of himself as an artist. When he was asked what was happening behind the scenes at Etsy, Wilson said, it was chaos. There was no management. It was all creative energy of the founders and just a bunch of people hanging around that, trying to keep things going. In the beginning, this was fine. And to be honest, this kind of chaos is not unusual in startups, especially startups started by young people who have a great idea, but not a lot of business or management experience. This this time period, the late aughts and the early oddies, was filled with this like legend, if you will, of young CEO visionaries who were going to change the world. It became just a silly trope after a while. Their youth and inexperience would be the reason their businesses would succeed because they saw things in a different way and they weren't hung up on the old ways of thinking, or at least that's what the business media was portraying it as. What we saw years later was that it turns out, yes, new ideas and a fresh way of thinking are super important, still are, so is experience in business and management. Otherwise, you run out of money. The work environment becomes exhausting and then toxic, or the overwhelmed, inexperienced CEO just does something really foolish and destructive that destroys the business. If you recall from our first Etsy episode, Kaylin started Etsy with the help of two other friends, Chris McGuire and Haim Shobik. I'm going to be reading directly from this Inc. profile, which I'll be linking in the show notes, because I think it paints a really good picture of what was happening at Etsy. As McGuire and Shopik were 
day and night trying to keep the website from crashing, Kalen was spending his time dreaming up new features. One day, McGuire recalls, Kalen proposed creating a system whereby sellers could broadcast live video feeds from their workshops. I'm laughing because like this wasn't even possible technologically at this point. Another day, he was pitching his co-founders on creating a modern-day version of guilds. There would be a brand new idea every day, McGuire says. Usually, it would be something that didn't even make sense. How are you supposed to teach blacksmithing over the internet? By the end of 2008, McGuire and Shobik left the company. Working at Etsy, he says, was like being in an abusive relationship. Yes, that's right. McGuire and Shobik... Kalen's co-founders and friends left the company in August of that year, 2008. Things were chaotic and messy at Etsy. A future Vox article would describe Etsy as, quote, like a child who'd too quickly outgrown his pants, thriving, healthy, and a little bit ungainly. Kalen was wondering, as were plenty of other members on the team and investors as well, if he was the best person to lead the company. He told Inc., I'm always skeptical of whether I'm the best CEO for the company. Well, in June 2008, Kalen demoted himself to chief creative officer, and the company's current COO, Maria Thomas, became CEO. She had a lot of experience working for both NPR and Amazon in the past. And this is not unlike, you know, let's go back to eBay, Meg Whitman coming in as CEO as being like, hey, I'm joining this startup. I actually come from a massive list of experience. I'm going to put some processes and structure in place. And I think that was the hope with Maria Thomas. There was a lot of speculation about this change in the business media. Many thought that Thomas had been brought in at investors' request to sort of babysit and maybe teach Kaylin. And I'm I'm not saying that's not possible. It sounds highly likely to me. But it's hard to say because no one said it directly to the press. But a month later, Kalen left daily operations entirely. Regarding his decision to walk away from the day-to-day running of the business, he told Inc., quote, I'm a hands-on guy. I need to be building things to feel like I'm making a meaningful contribution. And I didn't want to sit around as some kind of wall decoration slash mascot for culture. So I found a hilarious little write-up about Kalen's step down from CEO in the New York Times called Startup Status Gone with the Skate Ramp. And the article begins this way. When is a fledgling company no longer a startup? Once the skateboard ramp disappears, says Rob Kalen, the founder of Etsy, an online emporium of handmade goods based in Brooklyn. And while Etsy is only three years old, Mr. Kalen got rid of the ramp six months ago. Ah, the demise of the skate ramp. But I would wonder, was the foosball table still there? Did you have ping pong? Was there a nap room? I need to know the details. Were there beanbag chairs? That was another like trope of startup culture of that era. Well, Kalen did admit to the New York Times that we hit a point in growth that we needed people who have done this before, which to me, as a person who reads a lot of this business stuff, says investors demanded an experienced CEO. And that wouldn't, that would have been a wild and crazy idea. I mean, like this guy is 28. He 
has never run a big business before. He certainly is in way over his head. Does he even know enough about the technology issues, much less marketing, speaking to the press, finance, all the other things that as a CEO, you need to know. I'm sure he doesn't know that, right? He doesn't have the experience. He can't be like, oh, well, at my last job, we did this, and this saved us this, and this made this work better. He, he can't. He brings nothing to the table in that way, just the vision, right? And so I have no doubt that someone on the board was like, we need someone with a lot more experience to kind of take this to the next level. Anyway, the skate ramp, that's not even the funniest part of this piece in the New York Times. And I'm just going to read this verbatim. Mr. Kalen said he informed his company of his changing status by calling an all-hands meeting. I put on bright coral nail polish. I told them, as everyone knows, a male CEO can't wear nail polish. So I'm not CEO anymore. Um, what? What is what is this, like 1950? I don't even know. It seems so ridiculous, but a little adorable, but like, I don't know, kind of transphobic, kind of old-timey in terms of gender roles. I don't like it. Anyway, Kaylin would spend the next year running something called Parachutes, which was basically an academy run by him that would help Etsy sellers develop business skills and I guess his other goal was to, quote, solve all their problems. I'm not really sure what he was thinking here since, like, what did he, as I've said before, really know about being a maker? Basically, he invited about a half dozen Etsy brands into his workshop. He gave them free office space, and then he led weekly workshops on how to grow a business. He told Inc., There's this really interesting shift that happens when you're running an Etsy business where you have to change your approach from I make clothing to I'm making a living making a business that makes clothing. A lot of people either can't or don't want to make that shift because it means seeing things in a different light. Once again, a really weird thing for Kaylin, who literally has no experience as a maker or a manufacturer or anything like that to be teaching his Etsy sellers. But lest you were worried that Kalen would run away into parachutes and we'd never see him again, lest you missed his quirky ways, his children's books about fish and his coral nail polish, well, spoiler here, Kalen isn't gone and he'll be back for another round of foolishness. In 2007, Etsy began running a series of blog posts called Quit Your Day Job. What a beguiling concept, right? <laughs> the introduction said, quote, you've seen those big sellers on Etsy who seem to be making sales left and right. You have to wonder how they've made it to where they are. Can they actually be for real? What's their recipe for success? And these blog posts are exactly what you would expect. Etsy sellers would tell the story of how they went from hobbyist maker to literally quitting their day job to run their full-time, super lucrative business thanks to Etsy. It's a tale as old as time. eBay sold the promise of millionaire eBay sellers. MLMs like LuLaRoe sold thousands of women on the idea of being their own hashtag girl boss while also being able to spend time with their families. And even today, Poshmark sells the promise of running your very own business, selling secondhand clothing, thanks to Poshmark. Go back in time. We've got eBay and Amway and Tupperware, all of these companies 
that told their sellers they could quit their day job. They could finally declare, as we've all dreamed for so long, take this job and shove it. And they could become their own boss. Or if they'd never been able to work at a job because they had other responsibilities like family or health issues or any number of things that were keeping them out of the regular job force, now they had that chance to make a living on their own terms, for themselves, by themselves. The fact that these promises, these opportunities are so appealing that so many of us want to quit our day jobs and find success via these selling platforms, well, that doesn't surprise me because we know that more and more so-called day jobs tend to suck. They mean toxic workplaces and hustle culture, 10-hour workdays, meetings that literally could have been an email, little to no upward mobility, clicky coworkers, the misery of sitting in a cubicle, or even worse, this is where buying always falls into it, in an open floor plan office, no privacy, day after day after day, with very little at the end to show for all that work. Of course, everybody wants to quit their day job. You know, I get excited when I hear about this massive re-evaluation of work that's happening right now, thanks to the pandemic, thanks to more than a year of joblessness for many of us, or more than a year of working from home for others, or more than a year of realizing that your job treats you like you're disposable. I'm excited that maybe something is about to change in terms of what it means to be a worker. The millennials were always supposed to be the ones who were going to change what work meant. The number of think pieces going around in the late aughts and the early aughties about how millennials just don't like work. They're changing it all. The millennials valued experiences and quality of life over stuff. They questioned the idea of paying one's dues. And so they started their own companies like Rob Kalin. Yes, he's a millennial, but somewhere along the way, everyone got lost. They got sucked into the false promises of hustle culture. All of us, we spent all of our money on clothes and vacations. Okay, maybe not all of us did that, but I still like to believe that millennials can and will change the state of work and working. It's just going to happen now and not in 2010 when everyone thought it was going to happen. Remember, Rob Kalin told a studio audience of Martha Stewart fans that anyone could start a business on Etsy. Basically, find a thing you like doing, list it on Etsy, and soon you, yes, you, the woman over there making little chickens out of pom-poms and pipe cleaners, you, the woman over there making wreaths, you, the woman making hats for cats, you will be quitting your day job to make pom-pom chickens and wreaths and hats for cats all day, every day. By the summer of 2008, more and more Etsy sellers found themselves very frustrated. The site was slow and prone to crashing, its search function was terrible. The company didn't seem to be spending any money on advertising. And support for both sellers and customers was lacking. And you know what? 
Sellers were starting to blame Kalen and his team. They felt that there was no way the company was being run properly. In fact, they were excited to see him step down as CEO in July of 2008. And they were very excited for Maria Thomas to be CEO. In fact, a new blog, a blog literally hosted on Blogger, remember Blogger, had launched as a way of venting and sharing information about the platform outside of Etsy's own heavily policed, possibly censored forums. This blog was called Etsy Bitch, and it had a bone to pick with the seeming ineptitude of the company's leadership, the lack of customer service for anyone involved with the platform, and what it saw as an obvious favoritism towards certain stores and sellers. This blog initially was run by about 10 different Etsy sellers. Over time, it kind of narrowed to five or six, but it went on for several years. How unexcited was Etsy about the arrival of Etsy Bitch? Shortly after Etsy Bitch's launch, a thread on the Etsy forums discussing the site, which I want to say was 11 pages long, was shut down just after an hour of discussion. One of Etsy Bitch's first posts was an open letter to Maria Thomas, the new CEO, about the things that needed to change on the platform. For one, the site. Etsy Bitch said, it needs work. We don't need all the fancy toys. We need a site that stores important information seamlessly and doesn't constantly reset itself. We need a search function that works like Google. Well, sad to say, Etsy Bitch, I don't think Etsy's there yet. But as a person who's worked in retail, I know it's really hard to nail search. Next was engineers. Apparently, every time something was updated or a new feature was added, the entire site would just crumble and crash. In any other company, no one who was not an employee would ever have contact with the engineering department, right? But for some reason at Etsy, there was an engineer called Revolving Dork who interacted with sellers. I don't, yeah, weird. Etsy bitch wrote, Revolving dork is a liability. He treats others badly and automatically assumes that it's the user's fault, not that Etsy is having an issue, instead of the other way around. That is bad customer service and a horrible attitude to have. And speaking of customer service, of course Etsy bitch also called for improvements in overall customer support, saying... Customer support should be the most important position in the company. There should be phone support available and the email support is lacking. It should not take days for a first contact. Every email should be responded to in some way personally to let the user know that he or she has been heard. All customer support agents should have a customer support background. I mean, this is hilarious, but this is... This is where Etsy was at this point, just like little to no customer service. I've read many stories of just complete lack of professionalism and using, I don't know, unprofessional, for lack of a better adjective, language when talking to various sellers and customers. You know, I'm just going to take a pause here and say, as I've said a couple times in the series, that I feel really weird saying sellers and then customers because just to remind everyone again, sellers are customers of Etsy too, right? They're not employees of Etsy. They're, they're, they're also customers. It, when you think about it, Etsy has two customers, right? There's two types of customers. 
Anyway, the letter went on to request that the company actually advertise because it's still wild to me. Etsy was not advertising anywhere on the internet. So any new customers that came to the site might still be coming from that Martha Stewart appearance or other blog posts or news articles. It wasn't, it wasn't ads. And, you know, ads, we know we don't like ads, but at the same time, they bring people in, right? <laughs> anyway, Etsy Bitch also wanted employees to be fired who were shitty to sellers and customers. They had a long list. They kept a running tally. And they just generally wanted the company to do a better job at being professional and treating the sellers with the respect that they deserved because they were customers too. They also, the last thing they wanted to add was that the blog, the stork, was not very good. And they would like to see that be better. It was just filled with a lot of these quit your day job, puff pieces, and no real helpful information for the average seller. The letter ended with this. Contrary to popular thought, we do care about Etsy very, very much. We do believe in professionalism from the people we are paying money to. Many of our postings are dripping in sarcasm and frustration, but only because we've been pushed that far. There are those of us who are fed up and have nowhere else to go, and then there are those of us who have great ideas and wish we had a platform to express our thoughts. Etsy Bitch is our platform. You may wonder why we are anonymous. Well, we've seen many people punished on Etsy for things done off of Etsy. It makes us wary, and unless there's a personal guarantee signed by Rob Kalin himself, notarized and copied in triplicate, we're not going to reveal ourselves. And I think that's a really interesting thing to touch on here, too. So the primary way that sellers, you know, because now Etsy was big, it had well more than 100,000 sellers, community the community itself functioned in a different way. And the hub of it were the Etsy seller forums. What I've gathered from a lot of my reading, most of it not in from media outlets, but from Etsy Bitch and some other like posts I'd seen people make on their individual blogs, is that there was a lot of censoring going on in the Etsy forums. Threads would be shut down if one of the mods didn't like it. The mods themselves were also sellers, as far as I could tell. And some of them had vendettas against other sellers. They would immediately delete their posts or threaten them with retaliation for saying things. And apparently, you could get your shop suspended on Etsy if you were posting things on the forum that the company didn't like, or as Etsy bitch insinuated here, for saying things outside of Etsy. At one point, one of the women behind Etsy bitch was interviewed for Fortune magazine. We'll probably quote that article at some point here. And there was a lot of fear of doing that because Kaylin himself had been saying that when it came time to determine whether a store should be suspended or not based on something else, they would also look at that seller's behavior outside of Etsy, which just seems, it seems unconstitutional. Honestly, I'm just going to go there. This speaks to a certain level of unprofessionalism and a complete lack of infrastructure and policy and procedure within Etsy in terms of how it dealt with its sellers. I mean, it just speaks to the naivete of the people running the company, right? Maybe that's not the right noun either. Maybe it's maturity. I'm not really sure. Maybe it's inexperience. Regardless, you expect more from a platform 
that's making the kind of money it was at this point and whose existence is essential to so many people who are ostensibly trying to run their own business. Let's go back to this quit your day job idea. After all, it was an enticing concept and it seemed to be the idea, the promise that brought sellers to Etsy. Remember, Etsy had two customers, the sellers and the shoppers, right? They needed those sellers just as much as they needed those shoppers. Etsy Bitch and the sellers who read and commented on it regularly all agreed that this quit your day job idea was a false promise, that the likelihood of actually making a living selling on Etsy was just so unlikely It was hilarious. And there was a lot of bitterness around Etsy's constant flow of these blog posts arguing otherwise. I found one great submission from a member of the Etsy bitch community that really nailed it. Just wanted to put my two cents in about this quit feature. I wish it were gone. It's so depressing and misleading. The quitter now is a woman who sold 818 pieces. And they are nice, by the way. But by my estimated calculations, if her average sale price is $50, she sold a little over $40,000 worth since September 2007. That's gross, not net. How can someone quit their day job for a job that pays them much less than 20 grand a year and has zero benefits? People who take these profiles seriously will be setting their course for the poorhouse. She would qualify for social services with that income. So who was right here? Were, as Etsy claimed, tons of makers quitting their day job and living their dreams thanks to Etsy? Or was the Etsy bitch community right with its assessment that the numbers just didn't add up? Well, let's unpack some evidence here, okay? First, let's start with that ink article that I've been citing like all day long here. Dale Doherty, the publisher of Make Magazine, told the writer Max Chafkin, quote, Etsy has made it possible for a lot of small businesses to get off the ground, but even the most successful crafters run up against the limits of their own labor because handmade can be a limited idea. So what's Doherty saying here? Something that a lot of you makers already know way too well. There is a natural ceiling on how much you, a single maker, can make in a day, a week, a month, a year. And so naturally, based on that, there is a ceiling on how much your business can grow and how much money you can make. Basically, you can never sell what you cannot make, right? Even if you decided to work seven days a week and each item you made took two hours to make, let's say you work 12 hours a day, which please don't do that to yourself, but let's just say you were, you were like so in it, you were like, I'm putting in the sweat equity, I'm going to work 12 hours a day. That means you made six units of this thing you make each day. That's a total of 42 units being made each week. And that's with you, once again, working 12 hours a day, working yourself to death. You will never be able to sell more units than you own, than you've made, which limits the potential of your business to selling at most 42 units each week. And that 42 units that you spent 12 hours a day seven days a week making, 
those 42 units mean that you have quit your day job and you know, you've kind of quit every other aspect of your life too. Now, you could grow your business and quit your day job and still live a life if you were able to sell enough stuff at enough profit to hire someone to help you or even a few people to help you. Because in addition to making the stuff that you're selling, you also have to take the time to photograph and list it on Etsy. You need to pack and ship that stuff when it sells. You have to answer messages from customers. You have to order supplies, use the bathroom, eat food, and occasionally sleep. When you start looking at it that way, there's no way you're even making 42 units a week to sell on your own. That means you're not even selling 42 units a week on your own. At best, you're making 25 or 30 and you are miserable. Furthermore, 42, 25, or 30, none of them are enough to pay the bills. Let's just say you're making $10 of so-called profit off of each of these units after you deduct fees and materials. Guess what that leaves you, the person who has been working 12 hours a day, seven days a week. That's $250 to $300 per week, about $3 an hour you're paying yourself. Less than $16,000 per year. That's how much you are paying yourself since you've quit your day job and made Etsy your full-time job. Also, it goes without saying, but good luck getting someone to come in and help you for $3 an hour, $16,000 a year. It's like with prices like this, you can't grow your business and scale your business and hire more people and therefore serve more customers, sell more things, make more money. It just doesn't add up. Sure, you could increase the cost of what you're selling. You could then double your profit. Then maybe you could make $32,000 per year, which sounds a lot better. But if you do that, you risk being undersold by other sellers who haven't reached that point where they realized they're paying themselves less than $3 an hour. And yes, we'll be getting there. We'll be talking about pricing and underselling ourselves in a few moments. I promise, you know, I'm going to go on about that. (laughs) As I'm explaining this out loud to you, we all have the benefit as people who are not actually making stuff 12 hours a day, seven days a week to sell on Etsy to see clearly that any Etsy seller that truly wants to grow a business is going to have to hire people. It's really hard to see that when you're in it and you're overworked and you're making stuff 12 hours a day. And real talk To actually grow an Etsy business to possibly turn it into a day job, any Etsy seller is probably going to have to take out a business loan to rent a bigger space to work in since they're probably working in their kitchen or living room. They're going to need money to pay additional employees, to hire an accountant, to buy enough materials and packaging to scale a business. But that is going to involve writing a business plan, visiting banks, just generally doing a lot of things that the average Etsy seller doesn't know how to do and doesn't have the time to do. And Etsy wasn't really giving them the opportunity to do that. The argument, going back to the quality of the blog that Etsy bitch was talking about, is that 
the blog rather than educating people about like, hey, let's talk about how you can grow your business. Like, let's really get down to brass tacks and talk about what you need to save financially, how to write a business plan, how to have a conversation with the bank about a loan, all of that stuff. Instead, Etsy was filling it with fluff pieces about the same sellers over and over again, who ostensibly or allegedly, I guess, had quit their day jobs with not a lot of blanks filled in about how they actually got there. Most sellers were kind of stuck. Even those that did take out loans and or hired people and grew their business, most of them found themselves working round the clock for little payoff. And you know what? Many burned themselves out and quit. I found that most of the big Etsy sellers of 2008-2009 that were featured in various articles and blogs were no longer in business because supporting yourself via Etsy required more than most people could actually sustainably give. That Inc. article, I know I keep talking about it, but it breaks this formula down another way using Etsy's 2010 sales. We haven't even gotten to 2010 yet, but let me tell you, in 2010, Etsy sold $314 million worth of stuff. And Inc. takes that number to get to the actual number Etsy sellers might be making on average. Here's how it goes. It amounts to about $785 per seller after commissions and before taxes. It seems fair to assume, using statistics the company has released, that there are fewer than 1,000 sellers who are making $30,000 a year or more, and a mere handful who make more than $100,000. As one of the site's top sellers wrote on a blog in 2009, your odds of making $10,000 per year on Etsy are better than winning $10,000 through the Powerball, though not by a ton. It's interesting that a top seller said that, right? Anyway, Inc. continues to hammer it home by saying, the only Etsy millionaires, it turns out, are Etsy shareholders. You know, I encountered this comparison of the odds of making money on Etsy versus winning the lottery time and time again in my research. (laughs) People come back to it a lot. One piece of advice I saw repeatedly as I read blog posts, comments and forums, comments on blog posts, articles and how-tos, you name it, I have been reading it all. This is the advice I found time and time again. If you truly want to quit your day job, you can't just sell on Etsy. You also have to sell at craft fairs and flea markets, wholesale to stores, work out consignment situations with other retailers. And basically, if you hustle, maybe hire some people to help you, you might make it work. But Etsy wasn't telling that story. Their story was, you can make it work just with us. Speaking of diversifying, of doing more than just selling on Etsy, Cynthia Gentry, an Etsy seller and professional sociologist, told Fortune, sellers need to realize that. You might make it big on Etsy with a kick-ass product and lots of work. You might also win the lottery. See, more lottery references. Okay, so there's another problem with a lot of this Etsy selling. People weren't charging enough money. We know that this still exists in our maker community, and it's something we've talked about a lot around here. I've talked about this a lot with Danny of Picnicware, among other people, but we've talked about it on the podcast A lot of these Etsy sellers, they didn't have the experience or business education to understand the full cost of an item should include 
paying themselves for the time they spent making it. What do we always say around here? Let's say it all together. Come on, everybody now. It's cheap because someone didn't get paid. To make matters worse, they often tried to make their pricing align with the prices of similar mass-produced objects. So they were unintentionally underselling themselves and one another. For example, one person might list a knitted hat at $20 because that's how much they cost at Target. Then everyone else would be forced to sell their hats for $20 too because if you come to the site and you see similar hats, the average customer is... If they have to choose between a $20 hat and a $25 hat, they're going to choose the $20 hat. One person might be really smart about competition and list theirs at $18 just to capture shoppers who are comparing prices. So now $18 becomes the price of a knit hat on Etsy and everywhere else. And sellers are making even less money. In most cases, these prices might not even cover the materials required to make the item, much less enough to pay Etsy's fees and pay a living wage to the seller. I'm telling you right now, a person who's selling a knit hat for $20 is probably losing money. But just to reiterate here, in case you were wondering, yes, these hats are cheap and it means someone's not getting paid. That someone is the maker. You know who that someone isn't? You know who is most definitely 100% getting paid no matter how much that seller charges for the hat? Etsy. And that that's an important distinction to call out. We're going to we're going to reiterate that a million times in the next few minutes, but I just wanted to say it very loudly, very clearly, very simply. That Inc. article I've been citing, it said, quote, the vast majority of Etsy sellers are hobbyists who aren't in it for the money and consequently, this is my favorite part of this whole article, end up charging rates for their labor that would make even a Walmart buyer blush. I mean, that's a zinger. And this was how a lot of the media coverage of Etsy was sort of covering it, I guess. Their assessment was that the majority of people selling on Etsy were just doing it for fun and they didn't care if they made money. And so guess what? They didn't make money. But I would argue, I don't think that's true. I think a lot of people selling on Etsy really hoped that it would lead to something else. And they weren't being given the tools, the education, the training to do that. And so they were stuck in this hobbyist mode. I read so many blog posts about people who are like, I wait tables part-time and sell on Etsy part-time. I'd really like to stop waiting tables, but I just can't cross that threshold. So much of that. A somewhat snarky, incredibly condescending Guardian assessment of Etsy in 2008 said, and since there are no retail markups, prices are generally low. But 95% of the sellers are women, and many seem to love making what they make. They are pleased to see their efforts appreciated. They're not crocheting dolls' clothes to get seriously rich. I think this is how even customers looked at it, that these were just people making stuff for fun, for the thrill of it, and they didn't need to make money off of it. And so customers could also, you know, I mean, this happens now, ask for discounts and free shipping and you know, just in general, try to dictate lower prices for themselves because 
even a big chunk of the customers, especially as the company got larger and acquired more and more customers who weren't crafters themselves, a lot of these customers were kind of like, well, a knit hat is $20 at Target. Why should a knit hat be more expensive at Etsy? I'm not even going to break down why that's poor logic because I know you already know. (laughs) In general, sellers were devaluing their work as were the customers, right? They might say, hey, this item costs $9 to make. I sell it for $20 and boom, I made $11 in profit, but they didn't ask themselves, how long did it take them to make that item? Oh, it took two hours? So they just paid themselves $5.50 an hour to make that hat. That's not sustainable. Once again, Etsy wasn't prioritizing teaching sellers this because they didn't care how much a seller made. As long as Etsy got their cut and their customer was happy, that was the end of the story. Yet Etsy continued to peddle these quit your day job fantasies and more and more sellers found themselves over at Etsy bitch venting about it. Okay, let's talk about how those low, low prices that definitely did not benefit sellers may have benefited Etsy. Oh, You knew this was coming, didn't you? On September 29th, 2008, the stock market plunged, marking the beginning of a global financial crisis and a recession that would change the way all of us shop, work, and live forever. Retirees or people close to retirement, they saw their 401ks, their pensions, their any retirement savings disappear Some of them moved into RVs, found themselves homeless. That's basically the premise of Nomadland, which, by the way, you should watch that movie. Dustin and I just watched it. I loved it so much. What else? Tons of people lost their jobs, and they never had a good job again, or their careers took a severe left turn. For millennials who were just starting their careers, they struggled to find anything, so their careers were also stifled. This set up an entire generation who ended up with jobs in the gig economy, living paycheck to paycheck, forced to hold GoFundMes to pay medical bills and never own a home. On that day, September 29th, 2008, Etsy had record sales. November and December sales were essentially double the previous year. And by the end of the year, Etsy had hit almost $88 million in revenue more than triple the previous year. No recession over here at Etsy. Some Etsy sellers had such high sales that they had to shut down early because they didn't have the time or materials to make more gifts. The recession made two things apparent. One, people wanted to give handmade gifts, either made by themselves or others, with the idea that if you had less money to spend on gifts, which most people did, at least make them special gifts with the extra bonus of knowing that by buying a handmade gift, you would be helping someone, an actual person, get by. And two, people had less money, so they wanted all of their gifts to be less expensive. We all know this is how fast fashion became the rule rather than the exception because everything wanted, everybody wanted a hot deal all the time. Because things were so cheap and so underpriced on Etsy, Etsy found itself at the exact intersection of the Venn diagram of two circles. One was special gift, and the other was 
cheap gift. And where it was in the center of that intersection, there it was, Etsy. Once again, Etsy wasn't out there coaching its sellers to raise their prices since demand was so high. You know, that's what most businesses do. That's why things are more expensive right now because the demand is high and the supply is low. Etsy sellers should have been raising their prices. Etsy also wasn't advising that their sellers pay themselves a living wage because Etsy made a commission off of every sale, both a listing fee and a percentage of the final sale. Etsy wanted its sellers to sell as many items as possible. Low prices guaranteed this, especially in a recession. Remember, it doesn't matter how much this stuff sells for for Etsy because it's not Etsy's inventory. Etsy's not looking to make a margin, a profit off of every unit sold because they get paid no matter what. Does it feel like a little bit of a conspiracy theory to say that Etsy wasn't stepping in to coach its sellers about paying themselves because that would drive up prices, which could reduce sales and, you know, mean less income from Etsy? Actually, as I say it out loud, it doesn't at all. It sounds very reasonable and very true. (laughs) I know that the actual business professionals at Etsy knew that people were not paying themselves enough. There's no way they did not know that. They also knew that low prices equaled more sales for Etsy. You have to remember, by accepting all of that VC money, Etsy had made a promise to its investors. One was aggressive growth. Let's see, 2008 sales were more than a 300% increase over the previous year. Yep, check, we got the aggressive growth. And they also promised profitability. And oh yeah, did I mention that Etsy was about to turn a profit for the first time? So check and check. Etsy was delivering on its promises to investors, even if at the time they made those promises, they didn't realize that it would mean offering up their sellers and their well-being as a sacrifice. In 2019, Rob Kalin would confess to Vox that he had no idea what he was doing when he accepted that venture capital money in 2008. He didn't understand the promises he was making to those investors. He didn't understand or know that that money came with strings attached. He didn't know that profitability and aggressive growth were going to be prioritized over everything else. He said, quote, I didn't have enough awareness of the context of what was going on there in terms of if we take this step, will it compromise the values? He knows now, or at least he did in 2019, that despite his promises, his wishes, his dreams, his vision, the average Etsy seller was not and never would make enough money to quit their day job. He said, quote, I have a lot of compassion for the people who are trying to run their businesses on Etsy and are being marginalized by these corporate decisions that clearly benefit the shareholders, but not the stakeholders. And I think that's one last thing to discuss here, or just mention or hammer home or whatever, that the average retailer, let's, we're not picking on anyone here, but let's just say Target, just to have a face in your mind. There are two sets of people who are responsible for all of the profit that Target makes that generate that profit. One are the workers. That can be the workers in the stores, the workers overseas making the stuff, the workers in the warehouse, the workers in the corporate office, all the workers. Their work, their energy, their creativity, their knowledge, 
generates so much money for Target, right? So that's one set of it, right? And then the other group of people responsible for all of Target's profits are the customers, right? And it's pretty obvious in most traditional retail settings like this that the customers are always prioritized over the workers. That idea of the customer is always right, right? So while a company's gonna bend over backwards to make the customer happy, they're certainly not gonna do that for the workers. And in most cases, this bending over backwards for the customer will actually harm the worker in one way or another, right? So that's a traditional retail. When we come to Etsy, Etsy doesn't have workers. I mean, yes, there are workers at the corporate office, but they are a small, such a smaller part of all of the profits being generated by Etsy because the real groups here that are generating them, all of that profit are the sellers and the shoppers. Both of those sets of people are customers of Etsy. By 2008, Etsy has drawn a line in the sand between these two sets of customers, the sellers and the shoppers, and they have said, we are going to prioritize the shoppers at the expense of the sellers who are also our customers, who are so responsible for the revenue we make and that we cannot make the revenue without them, right? The same thing that was happening at eBay. Once again, at eBay, the people generating that profit for eBay were the sellers and the shoppers. And eBay was like to an extreme just saying, hey, guess what? We are 100% putting all of our effort behind the shoppers, the sellers can sort it out. It once again brings into play the, I don't know, is it a contradiction? I'm not really sure what the noun is that I'm looking for here, but essentially I want to shop on Etsy and eBay and I want you to as well to support all of these small businesses to allow these small businesses to grow. But we also have to recognize that every cent that we spend on Etsy or eBay or any of these other platforms like Poshmark, Depop, et cetera, part of that money goes to a big corporation too, whose values, whose ethics, whose treatment of its sellers we may not agree with. And it's quite a quandary, right? Like what to do there? I mean, I'm going to say this at the end of every episode, I would still always rather you buy something from someone on Etsy or eBay or any of these other platforms than go give your money to Amazon or Walmart. But it's frustrating. It's disappointing. It's infuriating to know that even as we try to support and grow small businesses, which are the future, we still have to be attached to big business at the same time. And hopefully that's going to change over time. Hopefully in this next few months or years, as we are seeing the way business affects our lives and reprioritizing, hopefully another option will emerge. That's what I'm hoping for. Well, that's where I'm going to leave off today. In the next episode, we'll talk about what happened next. And it's wild to think, you know, we're three episodes into the series and we're only in 2008. Well, the good news I'm going to say is that in the next episode, we're going to go through a bunch of years because a bunch of just wild policy changes happen right after another. And we'll talk about those. We'll share some stories from people in our community. It's not too late for all of you to send in your stories because you have to remember the personal is the political and we're all about that around here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. Researched, written, recorded, and edited by me, Amanda Lee McCarty. Please, if you have a moment, if you enjoy what you're hearing, please leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And of course, 
tell a friend. I am required by the laws of podcasting to ask you to do these things. I also have to add, if you'd like to support my work, please consider becoming a patron. You can learn more at patreon.com slash podcast or make a one-time contribution via Venmo to at crystal underscore visions. Please don't forget to check out my other podcast, The Department. It's my fun podcast. And last but not least, thanks as always to Dustin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye. 